welcome to Something Wicked, where each week we will discuss topics on true crime, haunted histories, and all things paranormal. This week, we're going country, y'all. We're just going to talk about Willie Picton, the butcher of British Columbia. As always, I'd like to give a big old shout out to our sponsor and all the patrons of the Something Wicked Haunted Hayride, and remind those that may have chitlins riding with them, this podcast is full of mature language, adult content, and random jaw flapping, because sarcasm is my second language. So kick back and enjoy the show. Apparently, the great white north of Canada has been hiding some pretty sketchy shit. Like inbred hillbillies that murder dozens of people. Now, I know this guy, Willie Picton, isn't like the stereotypical yodeling psychopath that you'd see in Wrong Turn or The Hills Have Eyes, but this special motherfucker decided that he was untouchable, which led the cops into one of the longest forensic investigations in North American history. Robert William, or Willie Picton, was born in Port Coquitlam, British Columbia, Canada, on October 24th, 1949. He was the middle child with an older sister named Linda and a younger brother named David. His parents, Leonard and Louise, were third-generation pig farmers and raised the boys to work in the family business. Linda was sent away to live with her aunt and uncle in Vancouver because her parents thought that a pig farm was no place to raise a lady. I mean... <laughs> it seemed fine for Louise, but I guess their daughter was just too good to be rooting around with farm animals. <laughs> Leonard was never involved in raising the boys, except to be the occasional abuser wherever it struck his fancy. Louise was pretty much a dictator and prioritized the care and hygiene of the pigs over her own kids. Like, to the point that the boys never bathed and the pigs were allowed to wander all over the farm, in and out of the house. <laughs> she would make them work long hours on the farm. They would tend to the animals and slap the pigs, which I don't know if you've ever seen or smelled pig slop before. I can tell you firsthand, it is disgusting. I remember <laughs> when I was a kid and my mom had made some for my aunt's farm, so she was going to have me hold the container of it in my lap in the car so she could drive to the farm. Well, the lid came off and <laughs> I ended up spilling it all over my lap, all over the car, and I had to fight not to add puke to all that mess. It was horrible and it still turns my stomach just thinking about it. It was disgusting. <laughs> Anyways, getting back to hillbilly hell. Louise would even make the boys work on school days, often sending them to school unwashed and in dirty clothes. This earned them both the nickname Stinky Piggy because they were always filthy and smelled like manure and dead animals. The boys hated to be at school because of this, and so they would often sneak out of school and go home and hide under their beds until the school day was over so their parents wouldn't know that they were skipping. It was also mentioned by a neighbor that Willie would hide in the disemboweled carcasses of pigs in the family slaughterhouse so young Skywalker could avoid being seen by his mother. When Willie was 11 years old, he used the savings that he had, I'm guessing from doing chores on the farm, to buy a calf that was being sold at auction. He fell in love with it and it became his pet and his only friend. That would be sad if the guy wasn't such an asshat. 
But anyways, he would always take the best care of it, like feed it, take it on walks, like brush it, all, all the, the like typical shit I guess you would do <laughs> with the farm animal pet that you love. And he would devote nearly all of his time to it after school every day. But one day he came home and saw that it was gone. So he went to the house and asked his mother where his pet was. She told him to go down to the barn, and when he got there, he found the calf had been slaughtered. He, of course, went into hysterics and would never let it go. Like, he told anyone he ever got semi-close to all about it whenever he got the chance. This was always believed to be the point in his life that made him cut off from affection. He pretty much didn't think that it was possible anymore to be able to love someone or have anyone love him. I'm sorry. <laughs> I know it's bad when a pet dies, especially if you're that close to it. Like, my cats are my babies, and I'm probably going to be inconsolable when they go. But it wouldn't cut me off from emotion completely. Like, <laughs> oh, my cat's dead, so no more loves for you. Like, just none, no more. <laughs> so, Willie also, while in school, was considered a slow learner. So, he would go through years of special ed. This only painted him more to be a simpleton in the community because people are assholes and tend to think that if you're, if you've been in sped, you're too dumb to function, which is the farthest thing from the truth, but I digress. Willie never dated anyone in school, mostly because all the girls were put off by his appearance and smell, which I'm not one to judge a book, but come on, dude. Like... <laughs> I, hygiene is a thing, a pretty vital thing. I get cranky when I go a day or two without one and avoid people like I'm some swamp monster. So knowing that this dude pretty much just never showered by choice, mind you, boggles my mind. He ended up quitting school in 1963 when he was 14 and started working as a butcher's apprentice while also still working on the family's farm part time. He found out very quickly that he had a natural talent for butchering and dissecting animals, which doesn't give me a warm fuzzy. This 14-year-old tapped-out kid suddenly finds joy in butchering like some psychotic Julia Childs, and he's good at it. <laughs> I'm good. I've seen enough horror movies and documentaries to recognize a budding serial killer. I'm all set. <laughs> He continued to do both jobs for the next four years, and apparently it was the happiest time in his life, until October of 1967, when his baby bro got his driver's license and decided to go for a ride in their dad's truck one night. So, David, I guess, wasn't paying too much attention to the road, and ended up hitting 14-year-old Tim Barrett. He, of course, freaked the fuck out, and went racing back home to mom for help. Louise went back to the spot with David to check Tim out. He wasn't dead, but he had been, like, fucked up bad from the hit. Like, fractured skull with subcranial hemorrhage and dislocated and broken pelvis bad. But instead of doing the normal human-type thing of getting him help, taking him to a hospital, you know, something a mother would do maybe, she literally just pushed him into this water ditch off the side of the road, and he ended up drowning. So then David told um, his mother he wanted to do something about it, like do the right thing. But she was like, no, just take the truck down to the family's mechanic and tell him to fix the dent, the broken taillight. Oh, and to repaint the dinged up spot with the red house paint that they use to paint all their cars. 
you know, cover up everything like it never happened. <laughs> this just reminds me of that Dr. Trance get on YouTube when the grandma is driving her granddaughter to the toy store. <laughs> and she's not paying attention to the road, so she keeps hitting people. And there's just blood spitting ass everywhere. And she's just Mr. Magooing it up the highway. Louise is just like, put some paint on it. All better. What <laughs> I realized... I realize I use a lot of sarcasm in situations that don't necessarily call for it. However, as a fan of dark humor and likely a well-adjusted adult type person, I use it to mask the disgust and fear I feel when hearing about these cases. And I know my wittiness makes you laugh. Love you guys. <laughs> Moving along. The mechanic did all the repairs but refused to paint it, which I don't blame him. Who the hell uses house paint on a car? <laughs> the next morning, Tim's parents started calling around everywhere, asking if anyone had seen their son. One of his parents' neighbors had said that their son had seen Tim out on the road the night before. So after searching for him and calling people all day, they eventually went to the police station to report him missing at 1 a.m. If that was my kid, I would have waited probably only until the next morning at the latest and been like hey my kid never came home go find him so the police along with the parents and the neighbors went looking all along the road where he had been seen tim's dad ended up finding his shoe so they narrowed it down to that area a few minutes later they found his body floating in the ditch about 10 feet from the road again stupid ass people leaving evidence it's how you get caught <laughs> like <laughs> but of course that didn't matter because his death was ruled accidental, so even though both David and Louise were brought in as suspects in March of 1968, after the eyewitness statements from the neighbor and the mechanic and the damage to the car, neither of them were charged. This, of course, didn't stop the neighbors from learning the truth, and the family became even more shunned for the time being. This was the biggest problem that all the crap caused, though. Willie saw that they got away with it, so he pretty much got the impression that the family, especially his mother, was untouchable and now became, like, creepily dependent on her. He quit his job at the butchers and went to work full-time on the farm to be with her. About 10 years later, so we're in 1978 now, his parents' health was no bueno. It started declining rapidly, and his father died in January of that year. A short time after that, in April, his mother was diagnosed with terminal cancer. I don't know what kind... I never found that information, but now Willie was seeing this all-powerful dictator of a mother get frail and weak, so he kind of lost it. <laughs> he would take care of her, feed her, nurse her, and this chipped away at him more and more as she got closer to death. He then started to get an affinity to buy pigs at auction and bring them home and slaughter them, along with all the other ones he had on the farm, of course. His neighbors had gotten over the little mishap back in the 60s, so they decided to go back to the normal neighborly acquaintance thing with the boys. A few made comments later on what they actually thought of Willie, one saying that he was nice enough but would act pretty weird, like drug trip weird without actually being on any. Another one said he was, quote, a good-natured little bastard. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so he was slaughtering the pigs. 
and taking the remains to dispose of at the West Coast Reduction Plant, which was an animal waste disposal facility. The remains were either put into what's called waste pools to avoid contamination to the air and water supply, or they were repurposed into fertilizer for mass crops. After his trips to the plant, Willie would head to the downtown east side of Vancouver in a section called Low Track, which is pretty much Canada's version of Skid Row. It was an area that had a lot of poverty, sex workers, and drug addicts. A columnist for the province at one time wrote about the downtown east side, describing it as, quote, probably the biggest concentration of human misery that exists in the developed world. There is nothing like it anywhere else in terms of numbers of people that are down and out and are never coming back. People are forced to support themselves through selling drugs, selling their bodies, and stealing, end quote. Here is where Willie would pay for love and affection because he was pretty much given none of that at home and he honestly was just more interested in getting laid and to talk a big game with a bunch of local guys at the Astoria Hotel, which was pretty much a dive bar. In 1979, his world flipped upside down with the death of his mother. She died that April and the farm was left to the three kids, so they split the profit of it. David decided he didn't want anything to do with the farm work and left it all up to Willie and he lived in the house. And Linda was just like, peace, because she didn't want anything to do with the whole thing in general. Like, fuck this family. I got my money. I'm out. <laughs> Willie moved into a trailer that was in a remote part of the farm because I guess his brother didn't want to live with him or something. Or maybe it was because Willie continued the tradition of breaking the world record for time in between showers. That. <laughs> Willie continued to do this hillbilly Jekyll and Hyde shit, acting like a super friendly farmer that didn't know his ass from his elbow by day, and a big spending king of the Astoria by night, which is the equivalent of being the smartest kid in preschool. Like, <laughs> he's doing the bullshit of like, I'll outsmart the Batman this time, for he'll never realize my secret identity is, I ate it all the piggy ham, I suppose they get a pudding now. <laughs> So, he would take his trips to the plant after butchering the pigs and go to low track. He still never bathed, barely washed his clothes. His trailer was a literal pigsty, and he didn't really care. <laughs> he didn't necessarily enjoy life on the farm. However, he felt that he wouldn't be able to succeed in the outside world, and he knew he was already good at the jobs he did on the farm, particularly butchering animals. He felt that even though he was stuck there, he could, for the first time in his life, do whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted. So he chose to live like a pig in both the physical and mental sense. He would pay women to clean his trailer for him or help him on the farm. They sometimes would stay there for months at a time where he thought he was befriending them because he would take them to movies, go shopping with them. Uh, oh, and can't forget, he would teach them butchery skills. And he always tried to convince them to have sex with him, but they never would. The ones that stayed with him anyways. I, I don't blame them. <laughs> he would make these friends who only used him because he would do stuff for them, like favors, but he was getting high off what he saw as power over people. More likely Jankum, but he was building quite a re reputation for himself, especially with ladies in low track. I guess standards weren't a thing there. Um, <laughs> one of the residents, 
uh, Shirley Sturks said, quote, he would spend loads amounts of money on a girl whenever she wanted for like endless amounts. When they returned, they would brag about him to their friends like this guy is a really good guy to go with, end quote. <laughs> so he was friendly to them until he wasn't. So Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, I had to. I see those memes all the time about the true crime docs going, and they were the perfect family until they weren't. And it just cracks me up all the time because the narrator really does sound like that. Like on Unsolved Mysteries and shit. Anyway, <laughs> he was friendly to the girls. But once they got into his car, he had a tendency to get mean real quick, especially if they didn't do what he wanted. The first incident of him hulking out happened in 1980 when he picked up a 14-year-old girl on Hastings Street. He attacked her with a knife, raped her, and then dumped her in a parking lot. And it, of course, only escalated from there. He, along with the police force in Vancouver, saw the sex workers and drug addicts as no better than the pigs that Willie raised. You'll see why I say this in a little bit, but it's really a tragic thing that people are discredited based on how their life turned out. Most of the time, it's a case of them needing help. Addiction is a disease. And <laughs> hell, I know there are people out there that choose to be sex workers and more power to them. I mean, I wish that they could all stay safe when they work, but that doesn't give society a right to push them aside like they don't matter. They do. They are people. And the last argument on the subject is that no matter what, just because you're a sex worker or have an addiction problem, that doesn't automatically mean consent. It doesn't give anyone the right to rape or kill someone just because you're labeled as unwanted or live your life a certain way. I am so tired of judgmental and hateful people that let these things go because it's not just the rapists or murderers that are at fault, it's the people that witness these things or have reported them, i.e. the cops, and do absolutely nothing about it. It's disgusting. They deserve justice just as much as you or me. That's all I have to say on that. Sorry, but it's an anger button that gets pressed every time I read about crimes that involve these issues. It just pisses me off. Getting back to it, after the incident with that teenage girl, Willie pretty much thought he could get away with anything. He was riding off the coattails of his mother's slip of the law, partnered with the fact that he never got caught for the rape, so he continued to do this routine on the farm and town trips for the next 10 years. In 1994, the brothers sold the northern part of the farm, reducing the land they owned down to 6.5 hectares. Uh, Hectacres, I can't do words, I'm sorry, <laughs> which is the equivalent of about 6,900 square feet, netting 5.6 million in Canadian dollars. So they's the Beverly Hillbillies now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> in 1996, now that they were rich, the brothers decided to register their farm as a nonprofit charity group called the Piggy Palace Good Time Society. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> That name doesn't just scream Uncle Bad Touches Basement O' Fun. I don't know what does. Oh my god, that is the creepiest fucking name ever. <sighs> but anyway, they claim that the charity was made to, quote, organize, coordinate, 
manage and operate special events, functions, dances, shows, and exhibitions on behalf of service organizations, sports organizers, and other worthy groups, end quote. But in reality, of course, this was all just a cover-up for throwing wild parties and raves that nearly 2,000 people would show up to. Which, I'm sorry, if you have nothing better to do in Vancouver than to get drunk and high at a rave in a slaughterhouse with redneck Mr. Hankey, I feel sad for you. (laughs) Willie would even hire sex workers as entertainment for himself and the guests at these parties. Some of the guests being members of the Hells Angels, who were known to attend quite often. After the parties ended for the night, Willie would take one of the sex workers back to his trailer where they would engage in his twisted-ass version of BDSM play, because consent was just not a thing for him, and he felt that this newfound money that he got gave him automatic power over people. He would get violent, as stated before, if the women he was with didn't give him whatever he wanted. So he would come up with some lame-ass excuse that they stole from him or committed some slight against him to feed his rage like he needed a reason to build up the anger to justify hurting these women. Between 1995 and 1997, 21 women would go missing from Blow Track, and in March of 1997, Willie almost got caught. to keep the podcast focused on content that entertains, informs, and is mindful of your time. One way to accomplish this is direct listener support. Your support would help the show grow so much. So I've set up a link where you can quickly and easily support the show. The whole thing will take 30 seconds. It's glow.fm forward slash something wicked. That's glow.fm forward slash S-O-M-E-T-H-I-N-G-W-I-C-K-E-D. We're asking for $3 a month, but you can contribute as much or as little as you'd like. If something wicked is part of your day or week and you love what we're doing please visit glow.fm forward slash something wicked and support us any way you can today it's dead simple and again will take no more than 30 seconds click the link in the show notes pay with apple or google pay and click the link of the podcast player that you want to use you can listen anywhere at any time happy listening a sex worker named Wendy Eisetter went home with Willie. While they were having sex, he handcuffed her, despite Wendy's objections, but she managed to get away from him and ran into the kitchen. He followed her with a knife, so she grabbed one off the counter as well, and as best as she could, defended herself while handcuffed. Every time he stabbed her, she stabbed him back. This happened multiple times, and even though she was badly injured with limited mobility, she was able to run from the farm. She flagged down a passing elderly couple on the road who brought her to local hospital. Funny thing, Willie was also treated for his injuries at the same hospital at the same time. Mind you, this dumb motherfucker left the handcuff keys for the handcuffs still on Wendy at this point in his pocket. The police charged him with assault. But by the time the trial rolled around, Wendy was too scared to testify, which wouldn't have mattered anyway because the prosecution thought she wasn't competent enough to stand trial. So Willie got off scot-free. <laughs> yeah, there was plenty of evidence 
between the injuries, the witness statement, the keys. But because Wendy couldn't testify, they were just like, nah, never happened. You're good, dude. In August of 1997, Willie went back to Lowtown and picked up 24-year-old Marnie Frey. Marnie was a heroin addict, and Willie offered to buy drugs for her in exchange for sex. So they went to his trailer and had sex, then after he killed her. It's not clear on how, but his methods usually involved either strangling them with a piece of wire or a belt or shooting them. It was suspected that he also dismembered her body and buried her in different spots all over the farm or other methods that I will get to later. Many of the families and friends of the women would report them missing, but the police would tell them that, quote, they more than likely just hopped the Greyhound and left, end quote, because apparently they hate putting any work into a case that doesn't involve a body. Now, in Low Track, people were never informed of the possibility of a dangerous individual that was stalking the streets, snatching people up. The residents were pretty much just left in a panic with no help and no advice to keep them safe. The only person that showed any kind of empathy or action was Elaine Allen. She ran a women's shelter called the Wish Drop-In Center. It provided food and social services to the sex workers in the city. She remembered what it was like to deal with the fear and worry for them. She told reporters, quote, It was horrifying watching women going missing. We were so aware of it. I think we all felt so powerless to do anything about it, end quote. Elaine reported several missing women, but the police never followed any of them up. She continued saying to the reporter, quote, we were just constantly rebuffed and just told that, you know, well, this is a woman that typically takes off and she'll take off with John and, you know, she's fine. I'm sure she's just fine, end quote. The police in Vancouver refused to use the term serial killer. They would instead say, quote, what do you expect? These women will just get in the car with a stranger, so who knows where they are, end quote. Really? Like, this is what I mean by dismissive. Just all of them. Like, bunch of fucking douche nozzles. For real. Now, getting back to the assault on Wendy, this went on Willie's record, but still big no-no on the Justice Department's end because in 1998, nine more women went missing. And of course, Willie was never suspected for any of them. There was no investigation and the police dismissed any sign of foul play, like whatsoever. Also in 1998, Lil Bro David got himself in trouble again. He got charged with sexual assault, but was never convicted for it. Chalker. Going back to Willie, these women always ended up going with him because he would pay them and he had the reputation of being a nice guy. <laughs> and as I said before, he befriended some of them. One of these friends was Lynn Ellingson. She was a crack addict and lived with Willie for several months in 1999. One night she had fallen asleep after getting high in his trailer, but something woke her up. She noticed that there was a light on in the slaughterhouse, so she went to check it out. When she opened the door, she was met with the body of Georgina Pappen, gutted and hanging from a meat hook. She freaked the fuck out, naturally, and ran as fast as she could from the farm. Willie didn't chase her. Why? I don't know. But he was just like, meh, whatever. <laughs> Which could have been bad for him. However, Lynn never went to the police. You know, I, I can sort of see 
how he would think that he was basically untouchable because when you look at everything so far, like his mother getting away with murder and his brother getting away with sexual assault and murder, Willie going out to rape and assault these women and now having unreported eyewitness murders under his belt, his thought process is pretty damn convincing. You have a police force that is dismissing any and all reports of the missing women in astronomical numbers, mind you, from that one small section of town, seeing as Willie's next victim, Brenda Wolf, would be the 53rd woman to just up and vanish, and nothing was being done. <laughs> Brenda went to Willie's trailer under the pretense that she was going to score some drugs. He handcuffed her during sex, then strangled her with a wire or a belt. It was never clear. He then took her body to the slaughterhouse, butchered, and dismembered her. And talking about the reduction plant, he actually brought most of his victims' remains there. So there was a strong possibility that a bunch of these women were being repurposed into fertilizer. So if you think about it, all the farms that got fertilizer from this plant were spreading people pieces in their fields to grow their vegetables. And that's not even the worst method of disposal that he used. Trust me, it's it's not. Again, I'll, I'll get to it, like I said before. <laughs> Momentarily. Patience, people. People in the low track were starting to get extremely paranoid. No one wanted to go out alone. No one knew what the signs or images were to even look for, which led women to being even more picky, which Johns they would go with. Elaine, the woman who ran the shelter, said on the matter, quote, The women were scared. They would tell me that I'm going to be the next one. If you don't see me tomorrow, I'm going out tonight. Come looking for me. End quote. I can't imagine the terror these women felt. The fear of the unknown has always been the biggest mass phobia that people share. And these women were just left in the dark to fend for themselves, praying that they didn't make the wrong choice when getting into someone's car. If they did, would they end up dead too? Like, no one should ever have to live with that hanging over their heads. That's terrible. Willie was in turn having trouble convincing these women to come back home with him, understandably, because of the paranoia. So he started using the female friends that he already had to lure more victims. Dinah Taylor, who had also been staying with him for a period of time, was being sent to women's shelters in search of sex workers and other drug addicts. She would say to them, quote, let's go party with Uncle Willie. He's got drugs. He's got booze. He's got money. End quote. Oh, God. <laughs> Again, with the creepy. That's so gross. Like, don't, don't call him that. Like, the dude's already skeevy looking enough. He's all greasy with that balding mullet and creepy ass hit grin like the her like oh god just stop stop <laughs> because dinah was going to these shelters she obviously would stop in a lot to wish elaine said that she remembered her coming in a lot approaching women then leaving with them and they would never come back in the year 2000 the picky palace good time society was shut down due to them selling liquor in an unlicensed property all the partygoers were just devastated. Boo-hoo. My heart bleeds over the fact that you can no longer rave in the same slaughterhouse that women were being murdered in and that none of you seem to ever notice. Can you not feel my overwhelming sense of melancholy on the matter? <laughs> 
By January of 2001, 62 women had gone missing. Now, the police decided to step in. Like, hmm, that's a lot of women. Maybe we should look into this. So, just know that if you go missing in Canada, 61 other people need to be gone too for the police to start giving a shit. So, patience is key. Don't forget that, children, like I keep saying. By April, the Vancouver Police Department and the Royal Canadian Mounted Police started the Missing Women's Task Force, and they offered 100 k to any information that would lead them to an arrest. Oh no, we got the badasses now after you, Willie. 62 is enough. No more for you. Naturally, because they were offering a huge reward, the tip line flooded with over 12,000 calls. Several of them mentioned a sketchy pig farmer that lived to the east of Vancouver and frequented the low track area. Willie was eventually added to the list of suspects due to the prior assault on his record, but he had no convictions, so the police didn't investigate him any further. They had no resources, no DNA bank to check identities, no solid case files, and no knowledge on how to look for a serial killer. Well, they sound competent. (laughs) The women's families were still urging police to look into it, but they wouldn't even after the task force was created. Because, you know, titles for the sake of making you look good. Marnie Frey's aunt, Joyce Chance, told a reporter, quote, It didn't matter how many times you phoned them and explained to them that we think she would be on this farm or somewhere out in Port Coquitlam. They didn't seem to care. End quote. So Willie just continued killing women throughout 2001. In June, he killed both Andrea Jonesbury and Serena Abbotsway. He didn't dispose of them right away, this time like he did with the others. Instead, he put their heads, hands, and feet in plastic buckets to store in the meat freezer. Cause why not? Mind you, while the tip line was still running, the cops got an anonymous tip from someone saying that he that Willie kept human body parts in the meat freezers on the farm. You'd think that would prompt them to at least go knock on his door, but no. Like, oh god, this hurts my brain. In November of 2001, Willie picked up 26-year-old Mara Wilson from the corner of Maine and Hastings in Low Track and promised her free dope and booze. He took her to a camper behind one of the barns on the farm, had sex with her, beat the shit out of her, and then shot her with a twenty-two revolver. Then he chopped her up and put her in a trash can out back of the camper and left her there. At this time, 64 women in total had gone missing, and the police were no closer to a break than they were from day one. On February 1st, 2002, the police got an unexpected lead. A truck driver that worked for Willie on and off told the police that he had seen illegal weapons in Willie's trailer. And they got a search warrant. Seriously? Like, fuck all the tips that you got before them about Willie being this shysty bitch and him constantly taking women back to the farm, but unlicensed boomsticks? Oh no, call the military. Can't have that. It it wouldn't shock me if this was the same guy that called in about the body parts. I mean, if he worked for Willie often... He may have seen the body parts and not wanted to say anything to Willie to set him off and decided to try to do the right thing by calling the cops. Four days after they got the warrant, they searched his trailer and being the dumbass that he is, didn't realize that Serena Abbott's ways inhaler was just chilling under his couch. 
So the cops stopped the search for the weapons and went to issue a new one because Serena was the name of one of the women that went missing. Oh, fancy that. (laughs) Willie spent the night in jail and police alerted the media of the case break. The next morning, news stations from all over the country swarm the farm, like ants that just found a big chewy cookie, just all around that bitch, hundreds. The first thing that was uncovered was evidence of death of Mara Wilson, mainly because her blood was still coating everywhere inside the camper. I mean, the man practically hissed at soap like a possessed cat, so bleach probably wasn't a thing for him. Good thing you didn't make it obvious you murdered someone, Willie. The police also found several photos of the body inside the trash can out back, so they checked that out, and they found what they described as just a couple of pieces, like a complete mushy mess of her. You could see the brain, the hair, the bisected skull, all floating in this pinkish soup. Back at the station, Willie was now being interrogated for 11 straight hours, And this motherfucker was just hamming it up, pun intended. He literally kicked back and laughed while denying everything. So after this failed tactic, the cops decided on a new one. They stuck his ass in a cell with an undercover cop where he just blurted out everything. Because you know how much killers need to brag to fellow people of the crime. He actually told this UC, quote, I think they're going to nail my ass on this one. I was going to do one more. Make it an even 50. That's why I was sloppy. I wanted one more. Make make the big 5-0. End quote. This dumbass just couldn't help it. He even knew he was under surveillance. He just spent the last 11 hours denying everything. He's just like, yeah, no, I did it. Oh, well. <laughs> the fuck? This confession made police believe that he killed at least 49 women, and on February 22nd of 2002, the police charged Willie with the murders of Serena Abbotsway and Mara Wilson. The forensics team and other investigators, meanwhile, were searching for other victims on the farms. They found the buckets containing the body parts of Serena and Mara, as well as hundreds of thousands of DNA samples. They determined were from at least 33 women, All over the farm, they found bloody clothes, human bones, partial jaw bones, and other parts. In the camper, they found, along with the photos and blood, a twenty-two caliber revolver with the dildo (laughs) attached to the barrel. And it had both Mara's DNA on it and Willie's DNA. Like, what the hell, dude? (laughs) No kink shaming here, but putting a dildo on a gun? What the fuck? Did you, like, never worry about shooting up Main Street? Because your DNA was on it, too. Don't tell me you didn't have your own personal playtime. Don't lie to me, Willie. (laughs) In the trailer, they found several pairs of faux fur handcuffs, women's jacket and lipstick, night vision goggles, a syringe full of blue liquid, which was found out in Willie's confession, was antifreeze. So another method of killing them that he used was to inject them with it because they would die in like 10 to 15 minutes after it got into their system. And the cops also found Spanish fly aphrodisiac, which is the extract of crushed up blister beetles that apparently will give you wood harder than Chinese algebra. Most of the time in mass marketing, it's sold as this porn star level libido juice when it's really just sugar water. But the real thing is supposed to be pretty damn effective. 
Fun little tidbit, Spanish fly has actually had historical documented use and dates back to Roman times. The gladiators used it to incite orgies. There was a Roman empress to use it as sexual blackmail against her family and notes on various queens using it on kings to spice up the bedroom and in turn, the kings would use it on their mistresses. So on and so forth. Yay, drugs! <laughs> <laughs> By April of 2002, the police had enough gathered evidence to charge him with five more murders. Stories of his crimes had flooded the headlines in both Canada and the U.S., our buddy Elaine was constantly getting calls from reporters all over, dropping the names of some of the women, asking if she knew them. She, of course, said yes, and they were just like, oh yeah, well, her remains were just found on the farm. And that's how she found out that all these women that she cared for were dead. After her, at this point, still assuming they were alive. That's fantastic. I feel for her. I really do. On March 11th of 2004, because the forensic investigation was still going on, the Canadian health officials would make a new statement that shook the entire city to the core. Their statement said, quote, Cross-contamination could mean that human remains did get into or contaminate some of the pork meat that was produced, end quote. Willie was taking some of his victims after he butchered them and ran them through a wood chipper to mix into the slop for the pigs. Also, some of the women ended up minced and mixed with the pig meat and given out to friends and family. Yeah, dude was feeding his victims to his pigs and feeding his neighbors with them as well. I told you the plan wasn't the worst. I wasn't lying. <laughs> Marnie's Aunt Joyce noted that she and her family were given pig meat from the farm several times, even after Marnie went missing. Joyce had told reporters about how her daughter ended up calling Marnie's mother to tell her that she was so sorry about the announcement because it was possible they could have eaten Marnie. Because that's a phone call every mother wants. You know the guy that sold us our Christmas ham? Yeah, about that. It was Long Pig. <laughs> and of course, no one brought any meat forward for testing. I'm guessing they didn't want to face the fact that Soylent Green was now a staple in their household. I don't blame them. I would try to wipe that shit from my mind faster than my internet browsing history. Like, gone. Just delete it. No more. By the end of 2005, the police now had enough to charge Willie with a total of 27 murders. And in January of 2006, the pretrial hearings would start. These would take over a year. During this time, the judge, James Williams, dropped one of the charges due to lack of evidence, bringing the number down to 26. Which, how? They spent over 18 months, like a, a few years, combing through every inch of that farm, and now there's a lack of evidence? I find that hard to believe. The judge also split the trial because he felt that it would take too long for just one, and instead of splitting it down the middle, 13 and 13, he decided 6 and 20 was the best course of action. I'm not good at the maths, but I'm pretty sure that isn't even. Like, 86% sure? <laughs> I had to double check on my fingers real quick. <laughs> The first trial began on January 2nd of 2007, so only 15 years ago, guys, this happened. 
It was held at the new Westminster Supreme Court. Marnie's aunt said that seeing him in the courtroom gave her the creeps because he just sat back and smirked through the whole proceeding. Willie pleaded not guilty to the murders of Marnie Frey, Serena Abbotsway, Georgina Pappen, Andrea Josbury, Brenda Wolfe, and Mara Wilson. A man named Andrew Bellwood testified during the trial that he had lived with Willie for several months in 1999. He described how Willie would get on the bed and act out the murders, kneeling over the women and pretending to strangle them with a piece of wire or belt. The defense, however, brought Andrew's past criminal record into light and former drug use, but it left the courtroom thinking about the testimony because his descriptions were extremely detailed. Lynn Ellingson stepped forward to testify finally, but the defense tore her to shreds on the stand, reminding jurors that she was using drugs the night that she supposedly saw Georgina hanging in the slaughterhouse. I know you can see pretty fucked up shit on a bad trip, but seeing as there's proof that Georgina's dead and was on the farm, like her clothes, DNA, all that stuff, I'm going to take a stab in the dark and say that what she saw really happened. Just guessing. The defense also painted Willie a simpleton that couldn't commit these crimes on his own and suggested that Lynn or Dinah could have been responsible. Final arguments finished on November 22nd of 2007. The jury took two weeks to deliberate, and on December 8th, they found him not guilty of first-degree murder, but that he was guilty for second degree, which basically meant that they knew he killed them, they just didn't think it was premeditated, which... I call bullshit. He chose to drive to low track and pick up these women, have violent sex with them, and purposely hulk himself out to work up the strength to kill them. Sounds pretty premeditated to me. They used the excuse that they could never be sure whether or not he acted alone, hence second degree. David was never charged with being an accomplice, even with his criminal record, and Lynn nor Dinah never killed anyone, so the jury was just gobsmacked. <laughs> Willie was sentenced to the maximum of 25 years and sent to the British Columbia prison. In 2010, the police and missing women's task force, sorry, went under fire from the community and investigation was launched, highlighting all the failures that the case caused, starting with the lack of police involvement and ended up with public outcry that the police and others had a bias towards sex workers and indigenous women. They, of course, were never reprimanded for any of it because power and money. While in prison, Willie tapped into his inner Hemingway and wrote an autobiography called Picton, in my own words, all about his side of the story, calling himself the fall guy in a series of crimes he never committed. He gave a copy of this manuscript to a former cellmate, who was a child sex predator, mind you, who in turn gave it to a retired construction worker named Michael Childress in California. Michael used self-publishing software to publish it on Amazon. It was up for a while, like available for around 15 bucks, but it was taken down after the cellmate tried to use his cut of the royalties for his own defense to get his charges expunged. The government clapped back with a law that forbid criminals for profiting off of their crimes in the forms of books and other merch. So, no money for Willie either. Aw, too bad. In 2012, someone decided to put up posters all over downtown Vancouver with David's face plastered all over them. They said, Beware, a known sexual predator, David Picton, has been seen in the area in recent days. Don't be fooled. So, David was starting to get some karma for what he did 13 years prior, finally, and decided to fuck off to Kana. Literally. 
there, much to my abundant joy, started up a charity organization for the poor called the Picton Foundation. Yeah, I think I'm going to skip donating to that one because more than likely he's running raves and getting the locals drunk and high. I'm good. Last little tidbit as far as the media goes, besides the book, there were two Criminal Minds episodes that are loosely based on Willie's crimes. If you want to check them out, I highly recommend them. And I was mind blown when I found out that there was someone out there that was actually sick like that. The first one is called Lucky, which is actually my favorite episode in the series, and the other is a two-parter called To Hell and Back. I was going to give a brief description of the episodes, but I hate when people give me spoilers, and I wouldn't do that to you if you haven't seen them. Just watch them. They're crazy twisted. In 2018, Willie was transferred to the Quebec maximum security prison and in 2019 had to leave for a short period for unknown medical reasons and what happened to justice for the other 20 women you ask as of 2022 the case was dropped and will never be brought into trial leaving 20 families wondering what happened to their daughters listening i hope you enjoyed the episode remember to follow me on anchor and tune in next week when we talk about sutomo miyazaki the otaku killer laters